Alright, everybody, so we're here with, uh, episode six. Oh, man, what a, you know, there's only four episodes left. I, you know, I didn't think about that until now to be sad. Uh, but the episode's called Blood of My Blood, uh, the familial term. I think, sir, I don't know, I was saying, who says Blood of My Blood? Circe? Or, Khale- I, I mean, Khaleesi says it. Uh, maybe, did the cows say that to each other? The, the uh, Dothraki people, Blood of My Blood? I don't know, maybe I'll learn it, you know, this time through. Episodes run in the background here. And the episode opens with Mira trekking through the snow while Bran has visions. And obviously, hopefully we'll get some of these visions on screen here. But as she treks, Mira falls, then Bran has more visions, which ideally we'll go back to. I don't think this has a slow-mo feature, but... Uh, then she walks again, then she falls. She's so exhausted, then Bran has this third round of visions... Uh, in this last round, there's lots of Night King visions. Uh, then Bran wakes up. And then they have uh, the old Deus Ex Uncleina, uh, Daniel Day Lewis, the uncle, or the character that, spoiler, uh, the, the uh, character looks like. He rescues them. He says, Come with me now. And he says, The dead don't rest. Oh, but I should start missing this first round of visions. Whoa, that was fast. Uh, Ned, uh, King's Landing, and Night King, the baby. And then I missed everything else because I was trying to look up dialogue. I was trying to multitask. Mistake. Okay, there's Mir again. She's grunting according to the subtitles. Brand's face, the sky, crows, that uh, goop, green goop. Young Ned, old Ned, uh, oldest Ned, Ned, one of Ned's kids, people running. It just said Mira panting. Now Mira struggling, shouts panting. Uh, she's uh, moving. She's really, this is really impressive how hard she tries. Grunts, you know, in parentheses. She can't move the sled. Sobbing in parentheses. Uh, murmuring. In parentheses, and she says, please. So you couldn't do the whole episode like this because this doesn't like uh, it's too focused on one thing. Now she's holding Bran's head. She's saying, hey, buddy. Now Bran's vision, whoa, Aerys, Tear Garden, the hard home, lots of shots of hard home, people running. Hard home again, Night King, ran with the Night King, people running, running, and the tree's brand wakes up. He says, Yep, oh, Mira, uh, they're here. And then we kind of got the rest. Uh, let's see, let me just double check it and miss anything. Yeah, then the uncle says, come with me now, the dead don't rest, and then they get away. Uh, The next scene, we have prancing horses, and then Gilly looking out of a stagecoach, or I don't know what they call them there, wagon. She says, oh, it's so green. And this is a funny scene, a bit like this podcast for a moment. 
Sam says, oh, yeah, once you get south of the Riverlands, you get all sorts of trees take over, maple, elm, beech, poplar, the odd willow. I mean, that's extra dialogue that just makes it like milk, honey milk or whatever they call that. And he's like, now summer's over, you get some autumn colors, more green here than anywhere else. And Gilly says, you're a nervous talker. So then Sam starts st- stops talking. And she says, it's better than being a nervous mute. And he says, I didn't think I'd ever come back here, you know, but my father made me renounce my title, my inheritance, and, you know, take me out if I didn't leave. A person just doesn't feel welcome at that point. Uh, but then we have a tender moment where he says, well, I'm going to introduce him, my, him, them to my family, like uh, Gilly and little Samwise. It's not Sam, is it Samwise? It's Aberin down somewhere. Uh, but then Gilly's like, well, what are you going to tell him? And he's like, well, bad news. My dad hates everything. Hates me, hates everything. Hates wildlings, hates babies, hates children, hates happiness, hates love, hates bread. My dad, did I tell you my dad hates bread? Uh, and she says, does he have a gluten allergy? No, joy allergy. I think, you know, I think he's from his father. You know, grandfather must have been much worse, presumably. Or, you know, just sort of some sort of uh, chemical imbalance. But he's like, this is good. You know, he has to take you in and little Sam because you're my wife and child. So, you know, he'll get education and you'll be taken care of. Um, let's see. Oh, and then we see, she, Gilly says, oh, I think we're here. And we see outside the window that Sam is loaded. Holy moly. I already forgot the name of his house is, uh, I forgot. I, think, I can't remember, but you know, wherever they live, Hornhill, that's it. Thank you, brain. But holy, this is, I didn't, I didn't know if that was his house, but it was like, it looked like the one of the mints, the U.S. mints. Uh, San Francisco's got a mint. His house is about 10 times the size of the old mint in San Francisco. Uh, then we meet his mother and sister, lovely, lovely people. Gilly curtsies. That got two exclamation points from me. It was so cute. And then she says, oh, hi, mother. And she's so happy to see San and Sam. And then his sister's Tala. He says, you're a woman now. And she's like, yeah, I'm supposed to marry some, uh, you know, butthead. Simon Fossaway, yellow teeth. I said, really, yellow teeth? I got you. I got you. How many, you know? He said, I have no land and no title and nothing. I got a sleep podcast. And, and, and listen, my teeth aren't yellow, but they're, you know, uh, you know, for years of coffee consumption. And I say definitely a couple of days in Westeros, I could get my teeth good and yellow. Uh, but when Gilly Kirsty, she says, I'm happy to know you, Lady Tarly. And then they said, oh, this is Samwell. And your grandmother gets along with Samwell. And she says, oh, this is a curious-minded baby. And then... Uh, he says, where's Father and Dickon? That's his brother's name, I think, Dickon or something. I don't know who they his cousin or something. They said, oh, they're dinner, they're out hunting. And then they go inside and, you know, Gilly, uh, Sam's sister's real nice to Gilly. You know, I was like, hey, I'll get you a dress, don't worry. 
then we have Tommen lighting a candle, Tommen and the Sparrow, end of plan. I don't know what that means. Cool design, end of plan. I wonder what that means. Oh, one point, there's a, I'm ahead of the tape right now, but uh, tape, the streaming video from Google, uh, what is it, HBO Go or Now, whichever one you pay the monthly fee. You, know, you guys should sponsor the show. Somebody tweet them. You get sponsor the show forty bucks a month. Uh, you know that'll that'll double my, that'll reduce my costs. But uh, I gotta figure out what end of plan means. But there's a cool design at some point behind the sparrow. I'll have to see it to describe it. They're talking and walking and more good use of space. And I also think this means that, you know, the budget's higher because they're able to shoot more complex scenes with the characters moving around. Uh, but they're talking about Marjorie. Oh, you, you know, he's like, okay, now I'm watching. He's lighting the candle. It's like, oh, isn't there any other way to get out of this? And the sparrow's like, no, no, no. You know, Marjorie's got to. He goes, are you worried about her? He goes, yeah, I'm worried about her. She's my lady, bro. He goes, I'm not spare, I'm a sparrow, actually. He goes, this, is, this is, seems dangerous. He goes, don't worry, she'll be protected. This will walk of And I can see it looks like the seven-pointed star in, in thorns in a circle. Uh, Tom, and, and, and no, he says, you know, people like Marjorie. I'm like your mom. So he goes, they'll, 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 you know, he goes, I think people are going to be nice to her. And he goes, you know, she's opened herself up to... Uh, you know, the God's plan. So I think, and he goes, hey, don't you, do you want to take a look, check her out? Uh, you want to see her? And Marjorie's sitting there. She's kind of reading a book. She gets up. There's big, big hugs. There's hands squeezing, upper arms squeezing. Uh, it's not exactly a tender moment. Um, you know, because you say, what, what is this to these, two? you know, poor Tom? And you say, okay. He's not in the friend zone, but he's not in the lover zone either. You know, he's in the uh, rich, uh, I don't know. Uh, but uh, uh, they have some really interesting dialogue. Let me just double check some of these notes before. Upper arms, oh, have you? So they start talking about the uh, walk of atonement. And she goes, have you spoken to the high sparrow at all? And he goes, yeah, a few times. Have you? He goes, yeah, and she goes, he's not quite, she's just such a good actress. He's not quite what we thought, is he? And then she laughs. She says, you must think I'm mad. You know, I sound mad. And Tom is like, no, 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 no. I mean, just these layers of acting, because I still don't know what's really happening. And it's still delightful. And they're like, no, no. Even And they're like finishing each other's sentences about the sparrow. It's like they're young lovers of religion. Uh, but at least with Marjorie, I'm like, I'm pretty sure this is just an act or a marriage of con- a second. It's just like her third marriage of convenience, right? One, two, and then the religious marriage, you know, proverbial religious marriage. Uh, but she says, yeah, there's something about him, way of looking at the world. And she's kind of like, you know, it's not easy being a rich sinner, you know, can't get through the eye of the camel or whatever. Tom is like, you're a really good person. I don't know what you're talking about. You're the best person I know. And he's really being defensive of her. 
And he goes, I was just telling him how you like poor people. You know, you don't, you know, you, you, you don't even have a perfumed handkerchief. And she goes, oh, yeah, I fed them soup, you know, because it was for the glitterati, Tom, and that was for the glitterati. So they didn't give them what they really needed. Uh, but she goes, I'm, I'm figuring it out here. And then she's even using the Sparrow's language. All the stories they told about myself, about who I was and why I did the things I did, Those there were many lies in those stories. And Tom's like, I don't, I don't understand what you're talking about. And she goes, oh, don't, don't worry, I got it, I got it covered. He goes, what about Loris? She goes, I love my brother. And she says, still, she she says he has to atone for his sins. I don't know. Uh, but she says, the gods have a plan for us all. Uh, let's see, Marjorie keeps talking sense to him. Gods have a plan for us all. Uh, then we have Sam and Gilly. This is like the cutest scene ever. I was like, I felt like an emoticon. Uh, this scene was so cute. I was making emoticon faces. Like Sam's got his hair cut or just at least styled. Gilly's in this dress, but she can barely move, you know, because she's got to wear a dress and shoes. Uh, and, and it's just so cute. And he goes, she started to walk, and he goes, oh, it's it's beautiful, you're beautiful. Then we have dinner with the worst person. On, I mean, this Sam's dad, I wish I had a time machine, holy cow. There's candles galore. He put, close your ears, kids, and parents, uh, count to five, four, three, two, one. Sam's dad's a total dick. Like, a, totally a dick, and uh, Gilly's eating with a fork and knife. That was funny. She's even glaring at him because he's such an asshole. And save, I don't know what that means. Uh, so, oh, Sam tries some small talk about the, uh, he said, what is this? Is this this today's venison? And then uh, Dickon or whatever says, no, 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 me. You got to cure venison. Awkward hunting talk about how they hunt for rampants and squirrels and beyond the wall. And he says, well, actually, it's Ed and John that do this. But then Gilly's like, he's like, Gilly's a pretty good hunter, huntress. Gilly the huntress. And then Sam's sister's like, oh, they're like Lord Umber. He teaches his daughters and, and, you know, the dad doesn't like that. And then they're like, oh, you want some more bread? And, uh, you know, then Dad starts shaming Sam. Says, not fat enough already? And he's like, holy, what are you doing serving white carbs at dinner then, uh, Jack Face? And Gilly's look when he says that is just awesome. And then his mom's trying to be proud. You know, Sam's like, well, I'm here under orders. He's like, I read your letter. You're to be a maester. And he goes, yeah, and then I'll get a chain. I'll go back to Castle Black. Uh, not good enough for this dad. You know, he's trying to live vicariously, I guess, uh, since he lives in the middle of nowhere or something. He's like a Walder Frey without, you know, like with a nicer house and, uh, you know, you know whatever you call those, cleanliness. Uh, dad keeps saying, you know, being a maester is nobody. And Gilly's like, excuse me, Sam, Sam's taking out a thin and a white walker. And they're like, no, 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 that's not possible. She goes, yeah, and then she's, she's on her way down to Castle Black, so the dad figures it out. 
He goes, oh, you, you know, who are you, a, uh, how'd you come to meet my son? And Gilly's like, listen, bro, you're not going to scare me. So she says, you know, the Night's Watch saved us uh, north of the wall. You're a wildling, what? And then the dad just can't, you know, and he brags about his sword, Heart's Bane. It's a, the sword named itself. It's a bane. You know, being around you is a bane, I think, if that's the right word. He goes, it's Valerian steel, you know, and he goes, I was supposed to give it to my firstborn son, but I'm not giving it to him. Uh, and he says mean things to Gilly, but, you know, Sam, like, when you go home, this happens to a lot of us. He regresses, so he really can't do anything. Uh, stand up. So then Gilly leaves, and then Sam's sister and mom leave, and uh, let's see. What do I got? Sam frozen. Oh, Sam's frozen. And the dad's like, well, this is the last night you'll ever spend here. You know, I'll keep the baby and the daughter can work here or something. And then Sam goes up to Gilly's room. He's like, sorry about that. I just didn't want you and little Sam to get kicked out. And Gilly's mad, but she's like, I'm not mad at you. I'm mad that horrible people can treat good people that way and get away with it. He's like, are you talking about the election or about the Game of Thrones? But she goes, when do you have to go? He goes, right, first light. And then Sam, everyone's upset. And Sam can't say goodbye. He says, say goodbye to him for me. And she goes, you're not what he thinks you are, Sam. He doesn't know what you are. And then Sam can't even sit, barely say goodbye to Gilly. And he closes the door. And Gilly kind of frowns, and the door is as big as a, uh, looks like almost like an armoire. And she tucks in baby Samwell, and then boom, Sam's back. This was, this episode had a lot of great moments, and this was one of them. Triple exclamation point. Sam says, get your things. Then he steals the Valerian sword. And Gilly's worried about it. Sam's like, my dad is a jerk, you're right. He goes, it's my family's sword, not my dad's sword. And she says, won't he come with it? He goes, he can bloody well try. Uh, then we have the wedding play, Joff's wedding play. Arya's watching it. A play again. It's from Joff's wedding. Tyrion's the villain of the play. Uh, Arya's laughing, you know, at everything. Cause they say, Lion and Rose are one. In uh, you, my beauteous bride, I pledge my undying love. And then... That he's makes he's actually nice in the play. Joff's a nice person, it seems like. And he says, "Oh, Tyrion, you gonna be my cupbearer?" And he says, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna poison you. Vengeance shall be mine." And then the care it was like very dramatic. Uh, uh, but it's good. My evil uncle Imp. And then we have some fun, well-written dialogue. The, the, uh, Circe, the actress playing Circe, says, My golden lion foully, falsely slain. I pray you found a lasting peace, free from strife and pain. Hear my prayer, O cruel gods. I take my life instead, for I cannot face another day when my sweet boy is dead. Oh, woe, oh, grief, oh, darkest day, my heart is full of sorrow. And then on and on. 
Uh, there's some really nice Oregon music, but she really steals the show. Lady, what, Lady Grey Worm or something. Yeah, nice Oregon music. Then we have Tyrion and Tywin. Tywin's on the toilet. Arya's laughing a lot of times at inappropriate moments where all the other audiences touched. But then once Lady Grey, Grey Worm, or Lady, uh, once the actress, she, everyone, even Arya, is like starstruck by her. But then Tyrion and Tywin get on, and then Arya goes backstage. Uh, there's more good organ music. There's a rusty mirror. Uh, then we have Arya in the bottle. And then the play ends, and Arya gets busted by Lady Crane. That's her name. And she says, what are you doing? How many times have you seen this play? Arya's like, three times. She's like, did you play? She's like, pay? And Arya's like, no, I snuck in. She goes, oh, same with me back in the day. She goes, the painted faces, the costumes, the songs. I cried when the lovers died in each other's arms. She goes, I joined him the next day, never looked back. And Arya's like, yeah, you're pretty good. She goes, well, I don't know about that final speech. Uh, you know, writing's uh, no good. And Arya says, why don't you change it? Uh, without you, it'd be all farting, belching, and, you know, screwing around. And then they have this moment. Lady Crane says, well, what would you change? And Arya says, well, if the queen loves her son... And he's gone before she says she could say goodbye. She wouldn't cry. She'd be angry. And she'd get vengeance. And then Lady Crane's like, who are you? She goes, Mercy. She goes, you have expressive eyes, Mercy. Wonderful eyebrows. Do you like pretending to be other people? And then Arya's like, I'm out. And then Lady Crane's, you know, about to drink her rum. And then we have a nice tense moment where we don't know what's going to happen. And we're led to believe one thing and then another. And they hold the tension for a while. And then the tension's resolved. And there's also this other undertone of them disrespecting Lady Crane and the director kind of being like, there's no rewriting my writing. Uh, this is my profession. I know what I'm doing. You have no right to an opinion. Uh, then Arya busts in. She says, be careful of that one, referring to the younger actress. She wants you out. And, but the girl that doesn't move, move her arms is watching the whole time. Uh, let's see, what else do we have? Uh, uh, grouchiness and jealousy backstage. Rum fake out. Uh, yeah, Arya's rival... And then we have this, whew, this great scene. I loved this. I really loved this. It's totally unexpected for me turn in the story. Uh, but totally totally sensible and wonderful. So Arya's getting the needle out of needle's hiding space. The music is building. I put uh, needle building. Arya gets needle building. Narvid. Merba, Mervin. Merced. Yes, capital Y, capital E, capital S, double exclamation point, gloves and all. Then we have her rival girl rats her out to Jacquin. He said, it's a shame, girl had many gifts. And then the rat, she wants to go after Arya, and she's got glee. She's, she's so, so after Arya, she's full of glee. 
And then we see Arya's got a little hideout going, and, and it almost felt like the end of the episode because there's this rising music, and there's this tense moment, and then Arya blows out the candle, but it's not the end of the episode yet. Because uh, then we have Sir Jamie PM down. What does that mean? Uh, Jamie Gates. It looks like PM Dawn, that uh, New Age rap group or something. Pam down. Pam Pam Dauber, PM Dawn. I honestly don't know what that says. Uh, oh, Pan Down. It does say Pan Down. I think that's what I thought it said. I think I meant crane, like the camera was on a crane and it lowers uh, from a high shot of Jamie to a lower one. He's on a white horse. Then we have, Mace. speaking of fools in plays, we have Mace the Fool. He's got blue feathers in his, I mean, this is comedy gold. If you need a comedic interlude, just put Mace up there. He's got blue feathers. He makes this lunatic speech. Even Jamie's like uh, uh, saying, I couldn't even understand what he was saying. Magnus? It's like Magnus uh, has overtaken the city and grasped in its claws my children. Uh, Let's see. Terrible had its day. But now we must drive it under the rock whence it came. Magnus has had it today. I said, is that a, to, when some kind of guy that didn't know about Magnus? And so that awful speech ends, and he nods to Jamie, and Jamie nods back. Then we see Sparrow and Marjorie at the sept. Marjorie's looking down. She's like, uh, she's very focused on, like, the ground and kind of, like, maintaining this neutral, or I feel this neutral look. Uh, then the sol- Mesa soldiers and uh, Jamie roll in. And Marjorie, all people are like, what in the heck? And then Marjorie looks stunned. And uh, then the grandmother gets there, Lady lady of Flowers, with the rest of the family. Oh, no, with a fan. She's like, even has a fan. She's like, it's too hot. And, you know, the, the sparrow, he's, he can be not be, what's, he, what's that called when you can't be flustered, unflusterable? I think there's a better word. But he's talking about the atonement, you know, and, and uh, Lady, you know, Lady Marjorie's got to do that. And the high sparrow says, yo, what's up, Lord Tyrell, Sir Jamie? And this was a really good job, uh... Uh, because Jamie really comes across poorly here in a good way. Because he says, sorry to interrupt, bro. We're here for Marjorie and uh, Loris. You know, just give them to us and we'll be out. And the Sparrow ends up, plays everybody like, he says, oh, I don't have the authority to give them to you. And you don't have the authority to take them. And this should have been bump, bum bum. And everyone's like, yeah, all the people are like, hell no. And they're like, well, we got all these soldiers. And it's just hilarious. Jamie rides up the frickin' stairs on his white horse. I could I could watch this scene all day. Yeah, worth about a million dollars. Rides up the steps and he just lies straight to a priest. I mean, I've lied to about a million priests and nuns. Uh, but he says, they speak for the king of King Tom and of the house Baratheon, first of his name. And the spirit says, well, the God's own recognizes authority in this matter. 
And he says, you've already insulted one great house. It won't happen twice. He goes, don't make, he goes, uh, Marjorie's not going anywhere. Uh, he goes, we'll take all you religious people out. And they said, well, we yearn for this conflict. And then everyone, and everyone's cutting from everybody's faces. Everybody's like, what are they going to do? Is this a showdown? The sparrow says, hmm. He goes, uh, well, there's no call for that today. No walk of atonement today. And Jamie, like most, like like these guy characters, these incredibly handsome, not too bright guys, is kind of like, what? What just happened? And you know, he says, "Hey, you know what? Marjorie's already atoned." So today, today we announce a new age of harmony, with uh, the crown and the faith, and time and rolls out. And people are like, "What? What the heck?" And the king, you know, they do, oh, the doors of the, no call for today. Why? I put triple question mark. Everyone, he goes, hey, psych. Remember when people did that? Then the doors of the steps open. Tom and the king's guard come out. He takes Marjorie's hand. And then all the people cheer. And then Tom makes a speech. He says, the crown and the face are the twin pillars run. The world rests. Together we'll restore the seven kingdoms to glory. And then you get the question, like, who's dumber, Mace or Jamie? Oh, there's music. Uh, oh, the music was very James Bondy. But Mace is like to the grandmother, his mom. He's like, Who, what's happening? And he says, he's beating us. That's what's happening. And the people love it. Then we have Jamie in his own room. He can barely get his breastplate off since he only has one hand. And then Jamie tries to, like, trick shame Tommen, because Tommen's like, you're not fit to serve me, you know, you're a liar. And you're against the faith, and the crown and the faith are one now. And he goes, until we run into that, like, uh, was that guy Martin Luther or whatever. And Jamie's like, I've been a member of the King's Guard since back in the day, bro. I don't, and he goes, I don't have to answer. He goes, you don't have to answer anybody, Tom. And you're the king. That's what that chair means. You no, you don't have to care about anything except for me and your mom. Uh, Sir Kevin's also back there, not advising in a solid, sol, you know, silent, nodding way. Jamie's like, we didn't have me walking naked through the spruce streets or spend, a, you know, going to the dungeons or, you know, take some church lessons. James or Thomas like, well, no, you've been a good servant. You can see Sir Kevin gives a couple nods. And he goes, yeah, you can continue to serve me, just not here. And then Jamie's face, he kind of tries to be not a poker face. But uh, then we have Sir Walter Frey. And this is a good way to do exposition here. And we get a really good bonus at the end. But Sir Walter and his two bumbling sons, he's like, you lost it. He kind of catches us up on the blackfish. Rake of Freak Exposition. Rake of Feet Exposition. That's what I, perfect. Oh, perfect. It looks like Refeet, actually, but it's perfect. And he says, you know, just like a couple of these other people, he said, you know, they're laughing at us. I hear it in my sleep. He goes, we we got to deal with this, uh, you know. He goes, I don't like it being people being better than me. 
they said, well, why don't you just take a bath, Dad? Like, that would be, and, and like, air this place out. It smells like your armpits, the whole castle. And he says, well, I don't care. Uh, they're laughing at me. Yeah, because you smell, you know, this place is so musty. And it's dank and dark, you know. Did you Have you seen, even Sam's dad's a jerk dad, but he's clean. And he says, you know what, go get River Run. And then we have another twist. And I was hoping to see Ed Muir again. Uh, but we see Ed Muir. Uh, and I said, geez, I, was, I, thought, I thought I liked his character. He was very uh, chipper. And, you know, not perfect like me. Another another character for me to identify with. Uh, and not a total buffoon like those two brothers, Walter Frey's kids. But, uh. Another flawed character, Edmure. So it was a nice surprise to see him. And he, you know, he said, "You're gonna all deal with the blackfish." Uh, but then we come back to Jamie and Cersei, and Jamie's got to deal with the blackfish, but he doesn't want to go. Cersei's sitting in her seat, rubbing her ring, and she kind of gives the Jamie the orders. She goes, "As Tom and told you to go to the Riverlands, just go." Because uh, he doesn't want to, you know, he does, he's like, I'm not going to go. I'm going to do something. She goes, no, no, no. She goes, uh, these people tore our family apart. And she goes, we'll treat them without mercy. Uh, but, you know, not not just yet. She goes, show our men where our loyalties belong. Show them what Lannisters are. And I also wonder if this is like the last Lannister gasp or not. Because uh, sometimes it's hard for me to separate my desire to see them sink even lower, and they're pretty low. But it doesn't. I guess it's their resiliency that bothers me. Maybe. Um, but I say, well, geez, maybe they could sink lower. Maybe they're going for a comeback. And Jamie's like, "What about your trial?" And she's like, "It's a trial by combat. I have the mountain. They've made us both stronger. All of them." They have no idea how strong we are, no idea what we're going to do to them. And then they kind of kiss, and they have this little passionate embrace. She says, we've always been together, we'll always be together. We're the only two people in the world. And I say, holy egos, holy egos. Uh, Then we see rabbits getting prepped for dinner by the Daniel Day-Lewis character with Mira and they're like, where'd you, how, what, what are you doing here? And he's like, three eyed ravens sent for me. And she's like, three eyed ravens dead. And he goes, now he lives again. And then Bran wakes up and he's like, Hey Bran, what's up? It's your uncle Benjamin. Uh, how you doing? And Bran's like, well, that's weird. And he goes, and he goes, yeah, I, I did it with a, I ran into a white walker. Thread Ra- children found me. Thread Raven, I worked for him. Now I work for you. He goes, I got dragon glass in me too, so I'm totally not human. But I kind of am. And he goes, uh, Bran's like, well, I don't have time to be this three-eyed raven. And he goes, you'll learn to control things before the Night King comes. He goes, because he's coming, but when he does, you'll be there waiting for him. And you'll be ready. And I really like that. I like Benjamin revealed. He's a very good coach. Or like, uh, I mean, I wish I had my own personal Benjamin. 
especially with his like flaming cat of nine tails or whatever it is, cat of one met tail. Then we have a Khaleesi in the Badlands, and she's like, "Stop!" Uh, and we see he's like, "Is that a dragon up there on the peak?" Even the first time I saw it, I was like, "What is that?" And the Khaleesi says that. She's like, "How many? How far is Marine?" And he's like, "About a, a dart." I was like, "Me a week." She goes, "How many horses am I going to need to get to Westeros?" He goes, "With everybody, thousand ships, maybe more." She's like, "Who's got those?" He's like, "Some dirty mouse." Uh, seafarer uh not yet but she she goes okay we ride for marine and then we'll set sail for westeros uh but he's like well, what's the plan he goes you're not supposed to sit on a chair in a palace uh you're a conqueror and then just galicia says you know my gut's telling me something i'll be back and then uh, the galicia goes off into the badlands and we see a shot of the peak again. I'm like, is that a dragon up here? And then they're waiting. And then Dario gets tired of waiting. He's like, because she's like, don't follow me or something. Or she said, wait here. And so then, uh, uh, but then Dario's like, wait, wait, I better go get get her. And then you hear this, uh, the dragon call. And then the dragon uh, casts, or for, then it casts this giant shadow and flies over them, circles and lands at the guys. It yells. You can see it's like a, it's different kind of dragon, like a, like a, like the liquid for the fire or something. Even the details is so awesome. And then we see Khaleesi's up there. I mean, this dragon is humongous at this point. And then all the Dothraki are like, what? And then Khaleesi is like, every call used to have three blood riders, you know, stand by their side. But, you know, I, I'm no call. I want you all at my side. Uh, not three. Everybody, I choose all of you. And everybody's like, yeah, dragons and you. Cool. And she's like, I'm going to push you harder than anybody's ever pushed any cow people. And she's like, are you going to ride across the sea in ships with me? And they're like, yeah. She goes, take out the iron-suited dudes and take out their stone houses. And they're like, yeah, oh, yeah. And she goes, get the seven kingdoms. Uh, the cow Grogo promised me in front of the mother of the mountains. And they're like, yeah. And she goes, yeah, are you with me? And they're like, of course, we. you got a dragon, of course. And she's like, you're with me forever, all the way to the end. And they're like, oh, yeah. And then the Khaleesi just sits on the dragon and looks over her, uh, part of her army. Dragon roars, you get a real close-up of its head. And the episode comes to a close, and it was a good one. Uh, so some really nice moments, and uh, we'll see. We only got four. It's already sad because we only have four episodes left, but uh, I can't believe it. Really, I can't believe it. that's six. Uh, that was episode six already. Wow! When time flies, when your d- disbelief is suspended. Thank you, Martin Weiss and Benioff. All right, so uh, tonight's episode, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about dog sled history, Daniel Day-Lewis, 
couple books. Uh, not, I don't know. One's a recommendation and one's an inquiry. Cold Personality, Horn Hill. I don't know. I think we'll cover Horn Hill first. And then if we have time, James Bond music. All right. Yeah, so Horn, I mean, I guess the reason I had to look up Horn Hill, one, I did not know Sam had that much money. I mean, holy cow, holy modesty. I mean, I was thinking he was maybe middle, like a slightly upper middle class, but I mean, he may not be royal, but holy, holy cow. He's, his family did well. But also, I was like, who, who does this guy think he is, his dad? I was like, who is this guy? Who does this cat think he is? Uh, so let's start with Hornhill. It's the Cedar House Tarly in the Reach. I guess as starters, I said, really, they live in the Reach. I didn't know that. I didn't expect it to be green. I, I guess because I read the first book and I remember so little about it. I said, I thought Sam would walk, try to walk home one time. And they said, well, that's what he I said, okay. Uh, but it's in the Reach. It's located southeast of High Garden, and its lord is uh, Lord Tarley. So let's look up a house, har- house Tarley in the in the next one here. Uh, here's a quote. This is all from the Game of Thrones wiki. Here's a quote from Marjorie uh, House Tarley, who still gives the re- who still gives the Reach its the best soldiers it has. If Aegon had named them as his lords, the Reach would have become the greatest military camp in the world. Uh, but then they would have needed the food. You can't conscript farmers. I guess that's a paraphrase, actually. So House Starley of Hornhill is one of the most powerful vassal houses uh, that swear fealty to House Tyrell. And their lands are in the southwest of the Reach. Uh, so pretty, I guess, I don't know. I, I, I guess I got to look at a map. But uh, uh, their stronghold is a castle known as, say, a palace. No, no offense. Uh, known as Hornhill. And they possess a rare, rare Valerian steel sword called Heartsbane. Uh, oh, interesting. The Tarly Sigil is a striding huntsman, red on green. Their motto, first in battle. All right, so Randall Tarley. Who does this guy think he is exactly? According to the Game of Thrones Wiki, Randall Tarley is a recurring character in the sixth season. Though he's been mentioned many times. Uh, played by James Faulkner, Lord of Heart Hornhill. Uh, head of uh, House Tarley, vassal family of House Tyrell. He's a, according to this, he's a fierce, ruthless warrior and a highly effective general. He's father of Samuel and Dickon and Tala. Along with his liege lord, Mace Tyrell, Randall fought on the Targaryen side in Robert's Rebellion. Uh, he commanded the royalist victory at the Battle of Ashford, the only defeat Robert Baratheon ever suffered. That's pretty interesting. And that's about it. Uh, let's see what the Battle of Ashford says, because this guy thinks he's hot stuff. Oh, wow, there's actually a lot on the Game of Thrones wiki. It was a battle during Robert's Rebellion. Uh, following the Battle of Summerhall, Robert removed his forces uh, to the western border of the Stormlands and marched against Ashford and the Reach. 
Uh, Stannis, who he left to hold Storm's End, warned him that marching into en- en- enemy territory would overextend himself and that he should just head to the north, but Robert wouldn't listen, hoping for a quick victory. And while Ashford was an indecisive battle, uh, Robert was defeated by Randall Tarley. However, Robert was able to retreat in good order uh, before the rest of the army could arrive. Uh, the feat forced Robert's army to the north to link up with the rebel armies from the north in the Vale. Uh, this left the Stormlands open to be invaded by the armies of the Reach and left Storm's End free to be besieged by uh, the Tyrells. Uh, the Tyrells could have chased after Robert, but Mace assumed that Tywin Lannister would stay loyal and flank arm- Robert's army as it passed the Westerlands. Meanwhile, if the Tyrells could sex- successfully take Robert's home castle of Storm's End, it would be a crushing blow to morale, uh, which would lead to, really, to his supporters abandoning Robert. Afterward, Robert retreated north through the Riverlands, hiding in Stony Sept, uh, leading to the Battle of the Bells. Uh, years later, Stannis encountered Samuel Tarley at the Wall and surprised sees Randall's Tarley's son. Stannis recounts to Sam how Randall defeated Robert in the Battle of Ashford, the only battle Robert has ever lost. And then it's just look up a little bit about Heartsbane. It's the ancestral Valerian steel blade of the House Tarley. They've held for 500 years. Uh, that's it. Okay. Well, moving on, where I found, I was like, man, what about, because uh, uh, they're pulling a sled in this, the beginning of this episode. It made me think of dog sleds. And they uh, said, what is the history of dog sleds? And believe it or not, over at the BLM.gov, the Bureau of Land Management, there's an article from Babiche Webbing to Kevlar Runners, an intro to Alaska dog mushing history. And I'll kind of paraphrase and quote from this. Uh, when Russian and American pioneers moved to Alaska, they found a culture already shaped and supported by its interaction with dogs. Uh, Albert, Alfred Brooks, who was with the USGS, and whose Brooks Range is named after, wrote... Uh, countless generations of Alaskan natives have used the dog for transport, and he is to Alaska what the yak is to India or the yam llama is to Peru. Uh, before contact with the Russians in 1732, Inupiaq and Yupik people of the Bering Straits had already adapt- adapted their masterful designed wood lattice to gut skin covered kayaks into an over-the-snow craft, minus the skin, but plus ski-like runners to glide over the snow when pulled by dogs. The average team was three dogs, with the master running ahead to guide the dogs between villages, fish camps, and hunting camps. Unlike today, teams were harnessed like a fan with no leader. Uh, With their long-distance fur-gathering forays, the Russians brought new efficiencies to dog-mushing. Teams harnessed in single-file or pairs was introduced, along with the concept of a lead dog that would follow voice commands and keep the team in order. Uh, Handlebars were added to the sleds, and large teams of dogs were used to sometimes carry passengers. 
Uh, demand for dogs and sleds skyrocketed with the gold rushes in Alaska in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, during one of the big rushes, it was said no stray dogs could be found in Seattle. Uh, Malamutes, uh, huskies, and other breeds were mixed to haul freight and passengers. Unlike today's relatively sleek long-distance racing sleds, sled dogs, uh, breeds of yesteryear weighed 75 pounds and pulled between 100 and 150 pounds. Uh, sled designs proliferated with manufacturing sleds joining the ranks of toboggan-like handmade sleds. Uh, most every uh, to, to, to sled at the end of the, at the turn of the 20th century was equipped with a gee pole, a stout pole lashed to and projecting from the front of the sled, which the sled driver could use to leverage and steer the sled. Uh, most dog drivers did still not didn't ride the sled, instead running besides or riding skis or snowboard. Ooh, cool! Uh, between the snow dog team and the sled. Uh, riding the sled was only for male, fast male or race teams. Uh, with the replacement of the dog team for inter-village travel by airplane, sled technology and dog breeding languished for a half century until sprint dog racing took the forefront after World War II. Joe Reddington Sr. and others reintroduced the concept of long-distance dog sled travel at the time for racing purposes. Uh, because racing loads are similar, similar smaller breeds are minimal. Smaller breeds, breeds of dogs have gotten more popular. So let's now incorporate lightweight plastics in the design with a mid-sled seed for the musher becoming popular. Nonetheless, dog drivers still use commands from the mid-19th century haw, uh, gee, to guide their teams. Uh, based on the uh, century-old designs by Alaska's native peoples. Uh, so that's a little bit, and I think there's another article I'll include. It's from snowyowltours.com about the history of uh, sleds and sled dog racing, and this is in Canada, so that'll be interesting. Uh, but there was something about the initial appearance of Uncle Benjen that had immediately made me say Daniel Day-Lewis, and I'm still not exactly sure... Uh, why it maybe say, hey, is that Daniel Day? I knew it wasn't Daniel Day Lewis, but Daniel Day Lewis tends to be this character, actor, or he seems. I don't know. I don't know a lot about him, but I know people are always like, huh, the Daniel Day Lewis. He's he's out there, and someone known for being just just being an amazing actor. And I think he was a cobbler once. But I said, well, what about this method acting? So so I, there's a couple articles. Uh, one is from the Telegraph from 2013, which is a, uh, like, what do you call those, a uh, slideshow article. So I'll include that in the show notes because uh, it just has, it's called Method Madness of Daniel Day-Lewis. It just has different pictures and stuff. So that's worth checking out. And then, of course, there's the Wikipedia uh, article. But there's this article at The Independent uh, from uh, February 2013. Uh, Joffrey McNabb wrote it. And it's called The Madness of Daniel Day-Lewis, a unique method that has led to the third deserved Oscar. And it's not too long, so I'll be reading through this article and quoting from it. And this is kind of says, to call Daniel Day-Lewis a method actor is an understatement. 
just won his the third best uh, his third Oscar for best actor for Lincoln. Uses mythical language to describe his craft. He's talked about quote the gravitational pull of another life that fires one's curiosity, and the mystery of performance at least practiced by him in front of cameras. He believes so fervently that he is the character he is playing that audiences are swept along with him. Oh boy, I can relate to that. Uh, from the article, stars tend to be defined by their immu- immutability. John Wayne was John Wayne. Cary Grant uh, had the star qualities as being familiar as their favorite brand of tea and coffee. Lewis, though, or Day Lewis, uh, Hardly ever repeats himself. It's always a radical new guys. And they compare this. She's the only British actor we could match with is Alec Guinness. Uh, Guinness had his own British version of method acting. Whether. Uh, but Dan- Daniel Day-Lewis goes further. Uh, whether he was in uh, the unbearable lightness of being, where he taught himself Czech, our uh, last Mohicans learned how to build canoes, or as uh, Christy Brown in My Left Foot uh, spent the entire shoot in a wheelchair, he'd call you by his you by your film name and you'd call him Christy. It was madness. You'd be feeding him, wheeling him around. During the entire film, I only saw him walking once. That's Sheridan's sister, uh, Kirsten, recalling. Uh, the paradox, according to this article, is that Guinness, like Guinness, he's, uh, he plays leading parts, even though he's a character actor. Uh, he's better looking and more athletic. Uh, oh, boy. Sorry, uh, Alec. Uh, uh, than Guinness's neurotic and aloof qualities and his ability to disappear into roles. He's very different from American method actors like Brando, De Niro, and Pacino, who remain recognizably themselves, even though the characters are different. Uh, Lewis is famous for his love of uh, woodwork, and no profile of of him fails to mention that uh, the painstaking craftsmanship he brings to his performances are like carpenters devoted to their jobs. All of this makes him sound absurdly earnest and self-important. Uh, he would be unbearable to watch if he didn't add at least a little playfulness to his roles. Because uh, he, he seemed to be enjoying himself in the light, unbearable lightness of being or my beautiful lingerette. Occasionally, he's uh, guilty of pantomime villain mugging like in, as, uh, in Gangs in New York. It'd be instructive to compare his uh, very dark performance in There Will Be Blood, uh, which was a wild movie, and his performance in that a while, uh, towards a lighter turn like he is in Lincoln. Uh, the characters are polar opposites but quintessential Americans. Uh, in the old days of U.S. studios, the actors had to take the roles the bosses gave them, and it wouldn't have been possible to have a career like Day-Lewis has had, who has deftly sent his image quoting as the obsessive who allows himself to be taken over by the characters he plays. Yeesh, that sounds too familiar. Uh, that, though, is what makes him special, is also what has led him to win three Oscars. Uh, in spite of making only fewer than a dozen movies since 1989. 
uh, for Abe Lincoln, he studied Alexander Gardner's Civil War era photos of Lincoln in the minutest of detail. And he said, I look at that, um, this is a quote from the New York Times, uh, the way you look at your own reflection of a mirror, you wonder, who, who's that person looking back at you? Wow, I love that quote. I love you, Daniel Day-Lewis. Uh, by some feat of imagination and empathy, he made Lincoln seem real. It wasn't mimicry. It was as much to do with expressing the feelings and thought process of the president at a pivotal moment as it was with appearance or voice. This isn't screen acting that can be taught, uh, in conclusion. Uh, you can't think anyone else who would have the recklessness to pray, play the role in such a way or the conviction to put it off. Quoting, A. Lewis is one of the greatest screen actors of his generation precisely because he is uh, ready to take such risks. And I just, I did, I was always curious about this, but according to Wikipedia, it says following the boxer, Day Lewis did take a leave of action, absence from acting by going to semi-retirement and getting back into woodworking in Florence, Italy, where he was intrigued by the craft of shoemaking, eventually apprenticing as a shoemaker with Stefano Bemmer. Uh, for time is exact, but whereabouts and actions were not publicly known. Uh, so thank you for being such a brave, uh, I don't know, it's just, he says, that's cool. Uh, staying with uh, Uncle Benjen, his first appearance or reappearance, I guess, and, and Daniel Day-Lewis in some sense. Another thing, the the look of uh, Uncle Benjen with his cloak and, and uh, covered face uh, reminded me of is this YA book by Jasper Kent, J-S-P-E-R-K-E-N-T, called Twelve, which I have not read, but I have it at work, and a lot of kids that read it say it's good, but it, it has this uh, uh, cover that uh, the, the character just looks a lot like Uncle Benjen. And I said, well, maybe maybe, maybe I should start reading it tonight. I don't know. Maybe I will. Uh, but it, it gets good reviews, and there's a couple other ones. It's called The Dalinov Quintet. Uh, it's a book one. And uh, it talks about uh, uh, legends, and then in the autumn of 1812, uh, the main character, Alec, uh, Alexei Ivanovich Dalinov, uh, who is facing uh, the army of uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, and city after city is falling to the French, and now it seems that only a miracle, this is from Goodreads, will keep them keep the French army from Moscow itself. In desperation, uh, Alexei, Alexei uh, and his comrades enlist the help of uh, Oprichniki. Oprichniki. So when you have dyslexia, I can't read non-sight words. Uh, a group of 12 uh, mercenaries from the furthest reaches of Christian Europe who claim they can turn the tide. Uh, but the Russians soon discover that they are indeed quite capable of fulfilling their promise and more. Uh, so it sounds like a cool book full of historical detail, thrilling action, and heart-stopping supernatural moments. Uh, 12 is storytelling its most original and exciting. So check that book out. And then uh, the traveling, I'd been meaning to mention this last week, but the fact of the traveling 
performances that Arya's watching. Uh, reminded me of this book I read last year called Station Eleven, and it's by Emily St. John Mandel. And I really enjoyed it. It's a, it's a short, shorter book, or felt short, uh, too short almost, but I mean, just because I enjoyed it. And it's kind of like, uh, it's it's really different in a good way. And so I'll just read from, uh, uh, so I'll just read here from Goodreads. An audacious, darkly glittering novel set in the eerie days after civilization's collapse. Station Eleven tells the spellbinding story of a Hollywood star, his would-be savior, and a nomadic group of actors rolling the scattered output, uh, outposts of the Great Lake region, uh, risking everything for art and humanity. Uh, one snowy night, uh, well, I guess I don't want to take anything from life, but it features Arthur Leander in ostensibly the present in a production of King Lear. Uh, then a paparazzo turned to EMT in the audience who helps his child, a child actress named Chris, Kirsten Raymond, who watches. Uh, and then uh, the EMT is Jevon uh, uh, as uh, a flu sweeps through the country. So it's bouncing around in time. And then 15 years later, after the mo- present moment, uh, Chris, Kirst, Kirsten is an actress with a traveling sympathy, 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 symphony. Uh, together the small troop moves between the scattered settlements of the altered world, uh, performing Shakespeare and music for scattered communities. Uh, written on their caravan and tattooed on uh, Kirsten's arm is a line from Star Trek, because survival is insufficient. And when they arrive at St. Deborah by the water, you know, uh, there's uh, action starts. Yeah, spanning decades, moving back and forth in time, and vividly depicting life before and after a pandemic. Uh, this suspenseful, suspenseful now is rife with beauty. It really has some nice moments. It really swept me away, yeah, especially the imagery and the yeah, uh, with Arthur and Jevon and Kirsten. All uh, we see a strange twist of fate that connect them all. A novel of art, memory, and ambition. Station 11 tells a story about the relationships that sustain us in the ephemeral nature of fame and the beauty of the world as we know it. So I I definitely recommend uh, Station 11. Check it out. I don't remember who recommended it to me. It was either Tom Merritt, like a podcast I listened to, it would have been either John August or Tom Merritt, Script Notes and Chord Killers, or uh, someone on Lifehacker, so I don't know, but uh, so I wish I could thank that person. But yeah, check it out. I'm quoting here, Look into my eyes, what do you see? The cult of personality. I know your anger, I know your dreams. I've been everything you want to be. I'm the cult of personality. Like Mussolini and Kennedy, I'm the cult of personality. The cult of personality, the cult of personality. Neon lights, Nobel Prize, when a mirror speaks, the reflection lies. You don't have to follow me, only you can set me free. I sell the things you need to be. I'm the smiling face on your TV. I'm the cult of personality. 
I exploit you, still you love me. I tell you one and one makes three. I'm the cult of personality, like Joseph Stalin and Gandhi. I'm the cult of personality. Uh, the cult of personality, the cult of personality. Neon lights and Nobel Prize. When a leader speaks, that leader dies. You won't have to follow me. Only you can set me free. Uh, you gave me fortune, you gave me fame, you gave me power in your God's name. I'm every person you need to be. I'm the cult of personality. And that's the, the lyrics of the song called of Personality by Living Color. After their day, second single off their debut album, Vivid. I guess the writing, oh, writers Corey Glover, Vernon Reed, Muzz Skillings, and Will Calhoun. Uh, so that's called a personality. It always brings up this term, cult of personality, that I honestly, I don't honestly know what it means or have a real grasp uh, other than like, uh, you know, where you nod your head. Oh, yeah, I totally know where you're called. Total cult of personality, man. Totally. And I think we live in this time. And I think there's even a danger in podcasting about this. But I said, well, maybe maybe there's not because I don't know what the word means. I said, yeah, I think there is a danger in podcasting of cult of personality. And they said, could you use that in another sentence, uh, like the definition? And I said, oh, it, it, my Skype connection's down. Sorry, sorry, I'll, I'll get back to you. Uh, but really, like cult of personality, according to Wikipedia, if I'm going to, you know, if I'm going to dispel my own ignorance, I'm going to do it there. Uh, according to Wikipedia, cult of personality arises when an individual uses mass media, propaganda, or other methods to create an idealized, heroic, and at uh, times worshipful image, often through unquestioning flattery and praise. Uh, sociologist Max Weber uh, developed a tripartite classification of authority. Uh, the cult of personality holds parallel with what Weber defined as charismatic authority. A uh, cult of personality is similar to divisionation, except that it is established by mass media and propaganda, usually by the state in totalitarian states. The etymology of the cult of personality probably appeared in English around 1800-1850, along with French and German use, uh, usage. At first, it had no political connotations, but instead was closely related to the Romantic cult of genius. Uh, the political use of the phrase came first in a letter from Karl Marx to a German political worker, uh, Wilhelm Bloss, in 1877. Uh, neither of us cares a straw of popularity. Let, let me cite one proof of this. Such was my aversion to the personality cult that at the time of the international, when plagued by numerous moves to accord me public honor, I never allowed one of these to enter the domain of publicity. Uh, the terms personality and cult personality and personality cult were uh, further popularized by Nikita Khrushchev's speech, initially secret speech, on the cult of personality and its consequences, uh, given in uh, 1956, uh, which criticized the lionization of Joseph Stalin and its contrarian, tri contrarianness uh, to the originators of the Marxist doctrine. Uh, Robert Service notes that a more accurate translation of the Russian is cult of the individual. Uh, throughout history, according to... Uh, 
Wikipedia, monarchs and other heads of state were almost always held in enormous reverence. Through the principle of divine right of kings in Europe, uh, rulers were said to hold office by the will of God. Ancient Egypt, Japan, Incas, the Aztecs, Tibet, Siam, now Thailand, and the Roman Empire are especially noted for redefining monarchs as god-kings. Uh, but the spread of democratic and secular ideas in Europe and North America in the 18th and 19th centuries made it harder for monarchs to preserve this aura. No citation there, though. However, the subsequent, subsequent uh, development of photography, sound recording, film, and mass production in public education, as well as commercial advertising, enabled political leaders to project a positive image as never before. It was from these circumstances in the 20th century that the best-known personality cults arose. Often, these cults are a form of political religion. Uh, so I get, oh, well, let's see, purpose, we'll finish up with this. I guess I kind of was right, I guess. I was. Personality cults were first described in relation to totalitarian regimes that sought to alter or transform society with radical ideas. Often a single leader became associated with these revolutionary transformations and became treated as a benevolent guide for the nation without whom the transformation could not occur. This is generally the justification for personality cults that arose in totalitarian societies like Stalin, Mussolini, Kim Il-sung, Ho Chi Minh, and Khomeini. Uh, but there's no citation for that. Uh, not all dictatorships foster personality cults, and not all personality cults are practiced in dictatorships. Uh, some even in democratic countries. Really? you kidding me. Cult personality in a democratic country, really. Uh, some leaders uh, may actively seek to minimize their own public ad- adulation, uh, like Pol Pot, who kept it on the down low because he was up to no good. That's my citation, though. And Eastern European communist some Eastern European communist regimes after World War II. Uh, so that's a little bit about cult of personality. And then I just wanted to briefly mention uh, James Bond music because I felt like at the end of the scene with uh, the Sparrow and Marjorie and Tom, and it was James Bond instrumental uh, music score-esque in a good way. Uh, James, this is from Wikipedia, of course, the James Bond film series from Eon Productions uh, has had numerous uh, signature tracks over the years, many of which are now considered classic pieces of film music, best known as the James Bond theme. Other instrumental pieces such as 007 theme or Honor Majesty's Secret Service and various songs have become identified with this series and uh, Skyfall won an Academy Award for Best Song. Uh, but I just wanted to talk about the composers. The biggest composers to the Bond films, save for, save for James Bond themes, are the work from John Barry. In addition to his uncredited contribution on Dr. No, Barry composed 11 Bond soundtracks and now is credited with creation of 007, dominated by brass and percussion, and the popular orchestral theme from Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Uh, next to Barry, David Arnold is the series' most regular composer. He composed the scores of five Bond films, 
uh, Tomorrow Never Dies Through Quantum of Solace. His Barry-esque orchestrations combined with electronic rhythmic elements give Pierce Brosnan its musical identity. Uh, Arnold was essentially Barry's anointed successor, Barry having recommended Arnold to Barbara Broccoli when she took over the Bond films after her father, Albert. Uh, Other major music composers and record producers include George Martin, Bill Conti, Michael Kamen, Marvin Hamslich, Eric Serra, and Thomas Newman. Uh, Each of these composed for only one Bond film with the exception of Newman. Uh, The departures from John Barry had various causes. Sometimes Barry declined in order to pay double income tax in the U.S. and U.K., and sometimes the director had worked with uh, their composer of choice on other films. Uh, so that's just a little bit about uh, the Bond, and that, that's it. Let's get on to Tom and Pounce. Okay, dear Bondman, I'm waiting. Uh, okay, sorry, Tom, I just, uh, give me one second here. We're waiting for an adventure. Man, 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 yeah. I know, I just got to check my, uh, but the Seven, Seven Boyned Star, that's this book. It's uh, the book of Zelf Discovery. Uh, Batman, uh, okay, uh, you should have done this before we started with the eel phones. Yeah, I know, I just think we missed something, because wasn't, sir, I mean, hold on. That does not say uh, Seven Pointed Star. Yeah, it's actually the hero's. It's about the hero's journey. It's uh, by Joseph Campbell. Supounce, uh, <laughs> the zero's journey, the the Batman story. <laughs> yes, he is uh, he is less than zero, Batman. Didn't you say something about that one time? The zero's journey, the Batman story. Yeah, you you already told that joke one second ago, Tom and. Well, it's so funny I said it twice, and now kiss my ring. Okay, okay I'll have, just let me look at because I thought we should have kept Sir Gregor. Because um, I gave you, I don't know if I gave you an ultimate boon. An ultimate boon. Call to Adventure. Super, maybe it was Super, okay. I know I should have paid attention. Threshold. Road of Trials. Meaning, okay, skip the meaning of the goddess. Temptress, skip that. Atonement with the father, oh boy. Pathiosis, I'd have to look that up. Ultimate boon, I think that was the shirt. How's that shirt working out for you? Oh, bad man, it, it is wicking. Remember you said it's wicking? It is wickedly wicking. Uh, do you think you could get a Uniqlo shirt for us bounce? Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe. I don't know if they, I don't, they, they'll probably make pack clothes at some point. Ultimate bone. Magic floor, boy. Rescue from within. Okay, I guess, yeah, don't worry, Podman. Don't worry, Podman. I'm so confused, Tom. And I was just thinking, though, that Sir Gregor should have been one of your allies. Did you set him up to meet with us later or something? Uh, no, Podman, he's the blue-faced man. I, I did the best to pass the test there, uh, but he's the blue-faced man. So, no. So, are you ready to do an adventure? Are you going to waste more time?
Well, I guess I'll just waste more time in character. So, yeah, I guess I'm ready. Yes, right away, your your grace. Oh, Podman, you are learning how to be subservient. Uh, I guess Mother was wrong when she said you were good for nothing. She might have been saying, are you sure she was saying that about me? And not, Yeah, she was saying about me, definitely, Tommen. Correct, right, because you were hiding under the bed looking at my mother's ankles and making... Wait, wait, wait. Uh, okay, let's start the show. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we interrupt this uh, specially special program for another uh, at K-Pounce Radio, the Radio Friendship and, and Bravery, uh, for your afternoon adventure. Right, okay, Padman. Uh, whoops, I guess. Uh, it was time for adventures with Sir Pounce and Sir Tommen on the road to Zelv Discovery. Uh, deep in the jungles of the unknown, our heroes Tommen and Pounce have encountered uh, all sorts of trials and apotheosis and boons. They've been tempted. They've had atonement in between episodes because that was too dull. Uh, but tonight they may not face their ultimate challenge, but it may be, uh, you know, building to their ultimate challenge. Join us for another adventure of Tom and Sapounce in the journey to self-discovery. Well, Sapounce, we definitely escaped that room with the moving walls. That was good thinking of you, uh, calling all the mice and, you know, making a deal with them. Yes, man. Yeah, no problem, man. You did good because they said, well, Sir Pounce, you are so crafty. Saying, hey, how did, I did not even know you spoke mouse. I mean, I remember, you know, when you had the mouse, remember when you, when I was down that time and you had the mouse, you pretended you were speaking mouse, but that was because the mouse was in your, in, in your, in with the tail and you said, and I said, Sir Pounce, are you speaking mouse? And you said, blah, blah, blah. Uh, That was so funny, Sir Pounce. Oh, wait, someone's running towards us and they're waving and they look scared. <laughs> are, you, are you the brave, Sir Tom? And, and, and the cat, they put some braveness and bravery. Are you the two best friends I'm looking for? Uh, well, I'm not sure. Who are you? I'm the... Uh, I'm zero, zero. I'm zero. I'm one of the, the uh, assistant to the the keeper of the temple of self discovery. Oh, oh, zero. You you look like a zero. Exactly. You sound and look like a zero. Ah, uh, well, thanks. We need your help. We know you're on. You're searching for the treasures hidden deep within the temple, but that we you will unlock, which will unlock treasures better than the treasures which are unlocked within the temple. And uh, the road to self-discovery. Okay, what can I help you with? I mean, usually I'm the one being helped. Uh, you should know that. But uh, I, I, you know, I'm learning from the podman, being of service. I mean, usually it's by being served. If you, you know, the pleasure of serving the king. But you go ahead. What, 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 what is the, what is this fuss about? Well, they, they believe it or not, the temple of self-discovery is under, uh, under uh, there's outside forces trying to get in and steal the treasures that we didn't expect, and we need your help to stop them. Uh, outside forces, eh? Uh, who's outside forces? Why a swan? What's, what's that, Sir Pounce? Something, sw- is it swans that are coming? 
No, no, yes, well, it's the Great Swan Army. You're right, the swans. They're a team of adventuring uh, brutes. And they just steal, they steal all the, you know, they come and they just plunder. And they'll leave the temple without finding the true joys of self-discovery, just the ones that are worth a lot of money uh, that they can sell to the, I guess, the royalty and other cities to put on display. Oh, like all the all the things I break in my room sometimes. And then Mother says, that was priceless. And I say, Mother, what does price mean? And then she says, oh. And then I say, it sounded so good when I broke it. Anyway, Zero, so these people are coming to take your treasures. What, is there a reason I should care? Because I'm, I'm almost, I think I'm almost done take, getting the tree. Oh, am I almost done? Uh, Mr. Tommen, we need, Sir, Sir Tommen, Lord Grace, we need your help, please, to save the temple. For there will be no one to protect the temple and keep it in condition after you leave. And we need you to, to take this book. This is the book of the temple defenses. And we don't know how they're going to get in because we can't read it. I think it's in your language and we don't have the power to act. We only have the... Okay, this is uh, terribly confusing. Almost like it was not planned out properly. Your defenses have not been planned out properly, Zero. Well, it was a surprise attack. Oh, it was a surprise attack. Eh? Just, just as soon as this episode started, a surprise attack came from the swans. Good job, Subpounds, at least naming them. Okay, give me the book. What is this book? Well, Sir, Sir, Sir Tommen, you go to a random chapter, and then you you look it up, and it's it's the last. Uh, it was one of your your one of your your true. I know you have a, a few five. It's it was a father, you know, father figure. It was a, a great male figure that actually wrote about your coming. He said, "I have an affinity for a bright young man named Tom, and I haven't been. I'm not his father, but I feel like his was a grandfather." It may have been. He said, "I'm not," and I leave this book so that he can defend the temple. Is he makes the road to self discovery? Well, grandfather, okay, let me see here. Uh, 13. Asking for help, appeal to people's self interest, never to the mercy of their gratitude. Okay, so Pounce, do you know what that means? Yes, ma'am. Okay, let me read a little more, but I'll perhaps I'll paraphrase. Uh, what is this book? It's a book of power. Yes, it's the power book, Sir Tom, and the laws of the power of uh, to defend our temple. It's part of the journey to self-discovery, as you know. This could be the thing they're using. We never knew if this was the tactics they used against us, or we were, we, we're, we're not fit. We're, to, we're just a... Okay, calm it down, Zero. Uh, don't be a Zero, even if you are a Zero. You know, don't act like one, you know. If you need to turn to an ally for help, do not bother to remind him of the past good deeds. Uh, uh, find a way to ignore you. Instead, uncover something something in your request or your, in your alliance that will benefit them and em- emphasize it all out of proportion and respond enthusiastically. Okay, I think I got this. Send in, uh, where are the swans? Uh, they're, 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 okay, go get Sir Gregor. 
and have Sir Gregor just just, just just you watch Sir Gregor's puppy, and you ask him because he's our ally now. Is he still there? But uh, if he's not, go find the leader of the Swans, and tell to have Sir Gregor bring him to me. And, and you know, like not like the blue faced man, like the nice Sir Gregor. Okay, right away. Okay, Sir Pounce, we need to find the ally. In Sir Pounce, did you understand some of that? I said, anime. Oh, read this writing. Okay, this looks like a story here. Oh, hello, sir. You one of the swans? Yes, I'm the lead swan, fool. We're here to take this temple and all its valuables. Uh, what are you doing here? Uh, well, normally you'd be in trouble. Uh, go ahead, Sir Gregor. Wait outside. I'll deal with the swan man. Uh, you're lucky his face is not blue today. Well, actually, and my mother's not here. Oh, I'm sorry, your mother's not here to protect you. Uh, actually, I'm on the road of dis- self-discovery to learn how to protect myself because of my friend the Podman. Uh, just so you know, uh, Swan, and uh, uh, well, this is, you're just not very nice. So you're here for some treasure. You're here to take all the treasure from the temple, huh? That's right. Uh, well, actually, I'm here. I've already been journeying on the road to self-discovery, and now within the journey of self-discovery. And I'm here to unlock all the treasures of the temple. As a matter of fact, uh, I've been working pretty hard at it. You should, you, if you, you might have, you might have already. If you, is there any legends outside already about me? Are you the buffoon king? Because if so, there is, with his cat. Uh, no, there must be someone else. I don't know about that, but I do know this story. One time. Uh, someone just reminds me of you a little bit. It was a peasant, not that you are, but it had a garden and a tree. The tree had no fruit, uh, but, you know, birds and grasshoppers lived there. And the, the, the man said, hey, let's cut, cut, let's just take everything. Let's take the tree down, like take the temple, kind of like you're saying, take everything out. Uh, right? Get everything. And right when he went to to take the tree down, the sparrows and the grasshoppers said, What are you doing? Don't cut this tree down. We like it here. And they said, Hey, we'll sing to you if you uh, don't chop our tree down. And then he started chopping at the tree, and he was going to chop it down, but inside was a beehive. Oh, you sing the bees are going to sting me. I uh, know, but then there was some honey inside, and he had some honey. And he, then he said, well, I don't know if I'm going to chop down this tree. I think I'll eat some of this honey. And he said, well, if there's always going to be honey in this tree, I'll take good care of it. I think it was probably syrup, though, because uh, we have syrup trees and syrup, syrup sugar. I love it. Oh, have you had cakes of pan, uh, Swan? I am growing tired of your d- d- yammering. Well, I was just thinking, you know, I, I, may, I may seem the fool to you, and I may be the fool, you know, as you say. And I may just have Sir Gregor out there, giant with his puppy, and Sir Pounce, the bravest cat that a bravery's ever known. But you have your whole crew of minions or whatever. But, you know, have you ever been in a deep in the temple and with the minions and then they see gold? What happens with that? Uh, they get mad, so they get into fights, and I have to, you know, I have to rule. 
and show them leadership. Yeah, and doesn't it be, that can be a real hassle. I know being a leader myself, I mean, you know, leader of a giant nation, actually, nation state, we'll say, and a keep, you know, mostly a keep. Uh, mother says, uh, well, now I have mother in the keep. And then there's this religious, do you, do you have any, or are you landed or are you just roaming about uh, making mayhem? Well, I'm about to make mayhem. Okay, well, I was going to tell you, though, that, you know, you'll get all those guys in there, and then they'll see the gold, and then, you know, then you'll say, well, you know, I'm then you have to take them and tell them what to do, and it's a lot of work. Oh, and there's also all these things. You've got to pass all these tests. It's so boring. And I'm just trying to get to the center of the temple. To be honest, I don't know why. Podman's got me on it. It's an adventure, and maybe for adventure's sake, this what I'm really doing is to learn how to be an adventurer on my own. And you could look at me with that distaste. That's fine, uh, Swan. But I was just thinking, like, I don't need—I am so wealthy. I don't need any gold, uh, believe it or not. I have—my family is so, so wealthy. I mean, this temple is even nothing. My, my room is bigger than this room. I should show you this one room we were in, though. It is very big. And I think, I'm pretty sure within that room is a way to get to the gold. You say you have a big room. Yes, yes, there's this big room here. If you just come with me, and, and then I guess we could do something together. Like, cause I, like I said, I just need to adventure. And then you could have the gold. And I'm pretty sure this one room... Uh, Pounce, remember the room uh, where, where all the silly mice were? And Pounce ate all the mice, it really. Uh, well, he, he threatened to eat all the mice. But then he talked to them, and, and he, they, they helped us. Uh, but they were tell, they were the ones telling us, because the mice, they can go through all the... I, I'm tiring of it. Okay, so let's go. It's just this next room here. And so, Pounce, maybe you could tell the mice to bring him some gold to show, and then what we'll do is move the wall. Uh, I bet you that those moving, once those walls get moving, that's where the gold is, right behind the wall. You say that's a secret wall. I do. So, okay, so, Pounce, can you run ahead? Yeah, run ahead and tell the mice to, to get some gold. Uh, Swan, call your men along. Why not? I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I think about you and your money. Oh, well, also Mother's not speaking to me. So if you were thinking it'd be easier to get, she wouldn't She wouldn't pay for me, just so you know. Uh, Mother usually looks at me like you've been looking at me, you know, as if I smell, if, as if I'm not perfumed, you know, but I am. I've, I've been, uh, even this morning, I had the Podman cover me in powder and lotion and perfume me uh, so that I would be good for the day. Oh, goodness. Yes, so, okay, so, see, all the, oh, look at that, is that platinum? Oh, the mice have it. So, so Pounce, see if you could ask the mice how we get to, how we can get to the gold. Oh, my, look at that gold. Yes, that's what I was saying, and, uh, oh, and there's a ruby there. Yes, but see, I don't need any of this because I'm so loaded. So what I'll do, so Pounce and I'll keep going, and then we'll just keep in touch with the mice, you know. And you stay, okay, so there's the door. Oh, hello, swan people. 
Oh, Sir Gregor, you are you showing them your puppy. Okay, come on in, everybody. Sir Gregor, you just wait outside there. And you guys collect the gold. Suppose could the mouse mice just keep bringing the gold to these guys till it's out? Yes, man, man, man. Oh, Suppose said yes. They'll just do that for you. How's that sound? Oh, they're bringing so much gold. Yes, you guys just stay here. We'll be with Sir Gregor. You know, if you if you decide you want to, uh, Sir Gregor, is it okay if I come out there with you? Oh, you're going to go with the big man now. Yeah, so I can't wait. Oh, you guys are all got, there's going to be, oh, look, there's more gold coming for all of you from the mice. So I'm just going to step outside here and watch, and Sir Gregor's going to close the door. I wish there was a window. Could you still hear me, you swans? Yes, I can. Oh, are you noticing anything about the walls? Uh, uh, the mice are leaving. Oh, yes. Oh, I think the mice are the ones that run. Oh, Sir Pounce, is that how it works? The walls close from the... Yes, man. Mice run. Oh, the mice run and, and then the close... Oh, anything happening now? Yeah, the walls are moving. Okay, goodbye, Mr. Swan. You've been fooled by Sir Pounce and Sir, Sir, Sir Gregor. Oh, I, I fool him. I fool him. I show my puppy. Yes, sir. Yes, Sir Gregor. You did. You did good. Very good for... Thank you for not being blue-faced, by the way. Uh, don't let this door open, though, Sir Gregor. I like door. I like door, we say. I do. I see that. Go bolt, go, go lock. But I hold, too, because they're coming to pound. Yeah, they'll be pounding on the door because the walls are... Okay, they never open door. Okay, excellent, Sir Gregor. Great work. You're, you are an ally. Podman said you were supposed to be an ally, he thought, yeah. So good to have you back on my side. All right, swans. Uh, enjoy. Speaking of pancakes, I say from the maple maple uh, maple syrup. Okay, bye bye. Oh, so bounce. I guess we're on to our next adventure. Uh, that was not bad at all. Once we got the adventure out of the Podman's hands, zero. Where did zero go? Uh, here I am, here I am. Great job, Sir Pounce. Great job, Sir Tom and, and Sir Gregor. Oh, hey, Batman. Oh, no, I'm zero. I work at the temple. Oh, okay. you always crazy. Uh, so, great job. You're, you're ready for your next adventure soon, but you should probably just kick back and relax. Here, I brought you some maple syrup candy. Oh, really? Good work, Zero. You, you are one now. I would say you're one. Well, no, that could be too broadly interpreted as something big. Uh, zero just fits you. So, thank you, Zero. Thank you, Big Sir Gregor. Here, I'll put it in your mouth so you can say by the door. I, what is that? It's a maple syrup candy, Sir Gregor. You'll like it. As sweet. Yes, it's very sweet, Sir Gregor. Here you go. Open up. I like this tasting. Is that the shape of cat? Oh, it is. It is cat candy. Uh, Sir Pounce, we cannot have any, right, Podman? Oh, no, I brought him ones that are made of fish. Yes, I have a, a fish candy for him. Oh, wow. Okay, well, thank you. And we'll just relax and kick back here. Thank you, Podman. Okay, I actually like that, Podman. So let's do another one of those next week, okay? I think next week i got to figure out what apotheosis is. Or uh, I think the Promethean part might be coming up. Um are you felt familiar with Telemachus at all? In a, in father who the father stuff. I think maybe that worked there. 
Okay. Oh, we got a code. We got a uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we'll now return your regularly scheduled program. Thank you for joining Tom and then Bounce in the road to Zelda Discovery on K Pounce Radio. K Pounce, the radio of friendship and bravery for boys and cats everywhere. K Pounce. All right, Tom, and I, I'll, see, I, I'll, see, I'll see you soon. I, I mean, here, I know. I'll see you soon. Okay, bye. Uh, Crone, Sweet Sweet Crone, Miller Smith, Barky, Chester, Hound Dog God. It's me, Praying in, Martha, Scoots, a.k.a. Martha Plimpton, character Martha Plimpton, calling from the goon, calling the goondacks. We get, guys, let's get right into, uh, Chester, like, uh, I think we went, did we do the Chester Copper Pot part? We did. And then we got to the part, the mid, midpoint, guys, we were at the midpoint, uh, which was, uh. I think, I mean, for us, it's the midpoint, maybe just past. And we decided to soldier on together, the crone, the sweet, sweet crone, uh, which character, you know, Miller, uh, Smith, Barky, uh, Jester, Hound Dog God. And uh, so let's go further in. And, you know, the trials now get more serious, guys. Now that we've, now they say, okay, I got two feet in now of this adventure. There's no turning back. We know we need whatever the, the certainty that the One-Eyed Willie's treasure promises. Uh, but also, guys, this is when the the uh, three-headed beast of self-destruction, old Scoots' three-headed beast of self-destruction, a.k.a. the Fratellis, uh, rears its head. Actually, I forget how Chunk got back with them. Um, but here's what, here's how it'll work. Uh, was Chunk, is Chunk, maybe Chunk's a little kid that lives inside me, guys. Did we ever think about that? Maybe that, who, who do we cast as, because let's just say that, holy truffle, maybe, maybe one day my heart will learn to truffle shuffle again, gods. Um, but yeah, so, Let's see. So here we are. We've got a. I can't remember. Some stuff happened, and then we've got to cross this river thing. And that's right when we see Chunk, and I think maybe the little kid, at that point, is under the influence of the self-destructive side. So we say, "You." I say, "Okay, everyone, stay back. I'll talk to the little kid." Part of me, Marshall Plimpton, uh, to internal Chunk. What's going on? You look scared. Oh, well, I am. I think we need to turn back or give up or maybe just take that map. Uh, oh, I forgot we had a map internal chunk. We do. And the map is a way to guide us to, uh, you know, follow your gut, Martha Plimpton, and stick with what's working and, and just keep going one step at a time. Don't turn back and don't fall with the, the Fratelli's intent. Because you see that one's, oh, those are the Fratelli's, by the way. It was a trap. Let's go. Uh, oh, you go ahead, Chunk. I'll stay behind. I've got data, data shoes on, too. Uh, don't worry, guys. You know, just like everything else, I'll do the heavy lifting. You go across the, the threshold, the log threshold. And I'll stay here. Oh, hi, Fratellis. Oh, you, uh, my Fratelli. 
the angry, uh, burning part of me, or whatever you were last week, that's what you looked at. It's like one cross look on your face, my fratelli. And yeah, you just want to be grouchy, huh? And just be grouchy and mad. Things aren't going, where's my certainty? Holy mackerel. Yep. Okay. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to stop us on our quest. Maybe, maybe, a little irony alert, my fratelli. We're on a quest for certainty. Uh, but maybe we're just on a quest for adventure. Is that a w- lesson we're learning, though? And yes, you, the singing version. Oh, the unrealistic expectation, fratelli. Uh, oh, your, your beautiful song d- delights me and says, One day I'll be free of these earthly pains. Not sure if it'll be a friendship with, you know, some Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie uh, while dating Miss Sunday or, you know, driving in Tesla with Muskie. That'll solve our problems. Just your song, your siren song wants me to just stay on this log as you approach and give in to, to your evil plans. So I'm so weak-willed, you're right. Oh, Fratelli's so tricky and, and wise. Uh, yes, I don't stand a chance. And you, the other Fratelli, you know, you're kind of grout. You're the agitated one. You're, you're a little spastic. And uh, you're, you've got the, the unrealistic side of your brother and the unrealistic dark side of your mother. And you're also just overreacting about everything. You don't even like water. You don't wait till I put on my uh, lube shoes or whatever they're called inappropriately. Yeah, I'm burning, putting on lube shoes. Uh, because that's the one thing. Sometimes uh, you just gotta, uh, I don't know. But yeah, that's what I'm doing. Going with the flow here for tellies. Uh, because I got to keep moving forward. It's weird that you're so in the middle and spastic and overreacted and agitated. And yeah, we're just mo- you're going to follow us on our adventure still, huh? You're not going to stop uh, pursuing us. You're relentless, you three-headed fratelli beast within me, uh, trying to stop me. Uh, as I stand here in the log, even though I have supernatural powers. Uh, which could be at my back and call, but they're standing at a far distance in a safe place, uh, watching me here, facing you alone. And But I guess the lesson is you're, you're relentless. You'll con- con- continue to pursue me, eh? And it's tiring being constantly pursued by all of you three. And you're calling from behind. Give up. Why isn't it gotten easier? I like when you sing the opera, like, the, why isn't it gotten easier? That opera, that's a good one. Uh, but as I, Martha Plimpton, have to do is adjust my glasses uh, to see you as you really are. Three uh, seeming adults, but that's all, but really you're just three bumblers uh, on the run from your own problems, and to be honest... And the consequences of your own actions, you're you're just run, run, running. And you're you're gonna try to use. It's weird that you're gonna try to use me, Martha Plimpton, to get your certainty uh, when you're on a collision course with doom. But you're relentlessly pursuing me, 
thinking if you, would you want us to be Goonies too? Well, I don't know. I guess we wouldn't become Fratellis, but uh, I guess what I have to say to you, Fratellis, is no, I'm crossing this and I'm greasing this log. And it'll slow you down for a week. Uh, and I know you'll keep at me. You'll keep yelling to me, Martha Plimpton. You, you and your friends didn't take a piano. And I said, well, let's go. That's why we got Andy the crone with us, because she's going to do the piano later. But keep coming, Fratelli. So I'll keep moving. I'll keep leading these gods with all their powers that have yet to be used. I'll keep everybody in control as the middle sister now in this... Uh, uh, yeah, so uh, keep it coming. I know you well, my fratelli. I guess it was re- never revealed that you were really Martha Plimpton. You're my parents or my family. Maybe that was in some fanfic once. If not, somebody put it in there. Martha Plimpton never spoke up because that was her mother and her two brothers. Uh, but also you live within me. That's the unfortunate part. So go ahead, three-headed beast. Chase after me some more. I'll see you next week. I'm not stopping. How about that crone? Sweet, sweet crone. Miller Smith, Barky Jester. Hound Dog God. Uh, thanks for watching me. I guess you're watching over me. Uh, get it, but I'm going to need your help every week from here on out because they're not stopping and I can't also forget that they're genetically linked to me now by fan fiction. And then even though I'm Martha Plimpton and I have the powers that come with being Martha Plimpton, I also could fall into one of their spells within me and forget that this is an adventure and start thinking it's a quest for certainty, gods. So help me, please. Oh, boy, help me. Martha Plimpton out. I mean, uh, everybody, hey, thanks and good night. Uh, I'm here live in Westeros, believe it or not. And he didn't actually get a ticket. There's a new art center opening, Tom, Tom, and, Tom and Art Center. And I think it's got a better, well, I said, can you pick a better name, Tom? And, and then I said, can I get a ticket to, to that? And he said, well, what would you wear? And I said, I'll go, I'll figure it. And then I said, well, no. And I said, well... I think he said all the. He said then we had a discussion about glitterati because he said he said what's glitterati, and I said well I don't I don't really know what it is but people you know it's like well dressed uh, good looking people, and you know, I see you're you're a handsome man, Tom, and by the way, uh, but outside here I guess they were auctioning off bricks just like other things. So there's a list of bricks of actually listeners that supported this. Uh, uh, Tom, oh, Pounce Art Center. No, that's what I told him the name of it. I said, you got to come up with something than just Art Center. And uh, he said something about it being symbolic, but I want to read some of the Brandon S. And it's cool because every brick is different shaped. You know, I guess they're not bricks, they're stones. Carrie S. Gavin M. Thank you. Kevin L. Uh, Chrissy R. Steve W. Steve W. is actually shaped kind of like a W. Sam R. Uh, Sam R. is like an oval rock. Lizzie S., that's a rectangular rock. Uh, Dave R., rock kind of looks like a frown. Uh, Ryan G., he's got like a bulbous rock, so if somebody's going to trip on that one, 
uh, Carolyn, uh, Carolyn B. It's, it's not exactly like a B, but I could say it is. Alicia H. It uh, looks like uh, Alicia H.'s rock's got some uh, sparkle. It's a, a, a literati rock. Sarah M. It uh, could be the Westerosi Bay Salt. Uh, Caspar. It, it looks like it could be granite. Maybe. Uh, Lawrence C. That's a, kind of a moon-shaped rock. Not a moon rock, though. Robert G. I don't know, that rock looks like it could contain some essential elements. Uh, Allen with an A, C. Uh, I don't know, that rock is just a, just a nice-looking rock. Ka, uh, K-A. That rock, almost reflective. It looks like a pile of one through one of those stone polishers. Uh, Laura V, that's a heart-shaped rock almost. Deborah F. Uh, very circular, near, nearly a circle rock. You're a Jackie P. The rock is a star, almost star-like. Uh, CC, that rock is, uh, I don't know, I guess it looks like, uh, it could be two, two could be C-E-C-E-C-C. Uh, I say you could do that, like it's the cutout of that in cursive. Uh, Kazia and Drew, uh, that one it lo- it looks a- like a bit like a palm. Uh, K.R., that rock, well, limestone maybe. Uh, Peter B. has that, that rock is like that color. It's not rust colored. It's like a salmon pink almost colored rock. Uh, Rachel G.'s rock has uh, one of those things with a fossil in it. Uh, the one... You know, he says he says prehistoric man, but not on, on our earth, on their planet. I don't know. Uh, Lori K. Rocks like a, a dark, like a, a, a so gray, it's almost black. Uh, Elizabeth S. The rock has speckles, a speckled rock. Uh, Kyle F. Rock looks a bit like a bird, a bird. Which is ironic, because Daniel G's rocks next to it looks like a bird's egg, but a pre, you know, ancient one. My crap, maybe there's a dragon in there. Who knows? Uh, Lucinda S. Rock looks a little bit. It's it's actually squarish, like almost like a top of a present. Uh, Charlotte S. Uh, Charlotte S.'s rock is flat enough. You say, well, if I was going to put my head on rock, that would be the one. Uh, Tyler S. Uh, Tyler S. is a, that's whatever chalkboard is made of slate. So you could get the kids down here with some chalk. I'm sure that's against the law though in Westeros. You know with Tom and uh, Liz S.'s rock. You know I don't want to pay. pay her. I said this rock looks like it could rock, and I mean like R O C K in the U S A rock. Seth W. No, again, you can see projecting on the rocks. I said, that's a wise-looking rock, if you don't mind me saying rock. Rock said nothing. Uh, Kirk G., that's a pet rock, no doubt about it. I say, you look like a good, loyal rock. You you want to come up? Oh, you're in the ground here. Okay. Uh, Adam R.'s rock looks like a kind of rock that would say, R, I'm a rock, a pirate rock. How you doing? I said, never met a pirate rock. Good to meet you.
And then Tracy R. Her rack looks like the kind of rack that would use jokes with an R in it, but not pirate jokes. Like, are you a rack or are you not to rack or not to rack? That is the question. Uh, the racks aren't asking because they don't have ears. Uh, John M. It looks like uh, he's got one of those long, thin oval racks. Uh, and then Alessandra C., her rack, if it wasn't in there, it'd be good for, like, you ever do try to skip giant stones? And you say, I'm going to skip this one. It's big. And I know it's dangerous, kids. You better back up. I'm going to skip this giant stone. And then you, it does skip to it once or twice. Uh, that's uh, Alessandra's rack. And then we had another, this is another rock garden, uh, PayPal rock garden. Uh, say thanks and good night for supporting Tom and uh, Tommen's uh, Pounce Arts Center. Anna L. Rock, that's a Zen, it looks like a very Zen rock. And then Sheila uh, B. Rock, it looks like a rock you could talk to and say, just nobody understands me, do you, Rock? How come people don't talk? Like, what happened? To, what, instead of having pet rocks, let's have rock. Like, uh, I guess you can't have rock friends, but uh, Sean M. It's the kind of rock you'd want to mull things over with if we're going to personify rocks. You know, when did Scoots' podcast get real big? When he started personifying rocks, it was it became. It reached a level of mundane that people said, "What." He's personified rocks, but without the personality. And you say, she say, I still don't know if he's brilliant or crazy. And you say, yeah, someone, you know, crazy. Yeah, man, we're ill. I guess he ill is a more polite way to say it. But, you know, because he, he's not joking either. That's the thing. As a matter of fact, he started, that's when the podcast came, because he donated all his money to Quarry. Because he said he was the uh, Dr. Doolittle of rocks. And then he said, you know, he's trying to do this rock, rock musical. He'll, you know, and then they, people thought it was a double entendre. It's not. Uh, here's another one. Rand, Randall P. Rock. That's a rock that Randall's, uh, like from that movie. Randall for me. Uh, like a dancing rock. Uh, Marcy B. That looks like a good rock for padding to make a point. You know, like you say... This is the last time I'm going to take you, you listen to, you know, you're patting the rock to underline your point. Uh, speaking of which, if you're listening to someone make their point, Stephanie, B, Stephanie B's rock is a good one to put your, your elbow on and then put your head on your fist and pretend like you're listening. Uh, GGW's rock, it's the kind of rock, almost like a bowling ball of rocks. You'd say, is it a bowling ball in there or a rock? Or, a pre, you know, it says, is this Fred Frontstone's bowling ball? Uh, Nancy M., that rock, uh, it looks like it, it's got those white, white swirls in there. And you say, geez, you could really, like looking at clouds, you could look at rocks. Who needs clouds? Uh, Jesse M's rock here. It's got a zigzag in the shape on the top side. Uh, Deborah M's rock. Uh, Deborah M's rock looks like a clock, so I'd say this is a rock around the clock, but the clock is the rock. Uh, but it's not a clock, it's a rock. 
Take that, Zeus. Uh, Rohan's rock uh, is actually the perfect rock to, uh, unfortunately, undo a uh, horseshoe or, like, strike a horseshoe or whatever they say. Ian R's rock uh, looks like a molar. Say, is that a molar or a rock? And then Daniel L's rock here. Uh, what kind of rock you'd say? I'm going to remember you, rock. I'll never forget that, Daniel L. Rack. They say, what did it look like? I'll tell you what it looked like. Couldn't tell if it was blue or black. Okay, wrap your head around that one. Thanks, everybody, for your contributions to both the podcast and to the Pounce Arts Center. Uh, good night.